Well, hello, and thanks for listening in to our weekly teaching podcast here at City Church. We are a church in the Knoxville area that seeks to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you're in Knoxville or ever visiting Knoxville, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people here in the city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can drop us a line at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, it's great to be with you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5, to that first passage that we just read, Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of ours. There should be some under the seats on the end of each row. If you're using one of those Bibles, the page number will be up on the screen behind me. Uh, If you don't own a Bible at all, feel free to grab that one, take that one home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of the Scriptures for yourself, but if you are a Bible collector, please leave our Bibles alone if you don't mind. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 is where we will be here in just a bit. Uh, If you are brand new with us this morning, uh, we have started a series called Church is a Family, Uh, and this series is really self-explanatory. It's all about how the church, God's people on planet Earth, were meant to function like a family. And so we've covered all sorts of things so far. We're about halfway through this series. Uh, Basically, the first week, we talked about just the big idea of the church being a family and what that means, and specifically what that meant to the culture that Jesus originally pronounced it to. How would they have thought about family? Because the reality is, ancient Mediterranean cultures like his thought about family much differently than we do. Family was a much bigger deal to them than it even is in our culture Today. And so the first week of the series, we just talked a little bit about what that means that Jesus says the church was meant to function like a family. The second week of the series, we talked a little bit about what makes us a family in the first place. How Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has actually made a way for all these very different people from very different backgrounds, very different approaches to life, very different socioeconomic statuses, even how Jesus has made a way for these very different people to all live together as one family in the church. That's what we talked about in week two. And then last week, if you were here, my friend Dominique was here, and he spent the week talking about what it looks like to love one another as a church family. He talked about what love is and what love isn't and how we should go about doing that as a church family. So with all of that in mind, Today, I really just have one very important, very practical problem that we need to solve when it comes to us being a family together, when it comes to us living as a church family together. And the problem is this, if we are called to live in deep, meaningful relationships with one another, if we're called to love one another with a biblical type of love as defined in 1 Corinthians 13, like we talked about last week, and if we are called to do that with people who are very different than we are, as we endeavor in that process together, one thing is very sure to happen. Anybody want to take a guess at what that thing is? Anybody been around City Church for a little while and know where I'm going here? Conflict, absolutely. I heard a few people say it. Almost assuredly, if we endeavor to live in these types of relationships like the scriptures tell us to, at some point, we are going to encounter conflict with one another. 
that's the good news I have for you this morning, is that we're going to encounter conflict with one another. Eventually, in that process, we are going to annoy one another, frustrate one another, sin against one another, wrong one another. It just is going to happen if we go about life together as a church family. And you know, one thing I find incredibly refreshing about the Scriptures is that it doesn't even attempt to sugarcoat that reality about life together in the kingdom of God. It doesn't for a second pretend in the Bible that conflict doesn't occur between followers of Jesus. In the Gospels, for instance, there are stories of the disciples arguing with one another about who is the greatest, which is an interesting thing considering they were hanging out with the Lord of the universe in the flesh, right? Like you would think that would be a dead giveaway as to which one of them was the greatest. But they get in this conflict about which one of them is the greatest, and Jesus has to sit them down and give them a talking to about what it actually looks like to be great in the kingdom of God. But there it is, in plain sight in the Bible, followers of Jesus in conflict with one another. There's another story about two of the disciples, James and John, their mother, she goes up to Jesus and asks that Jesus give both of her sons positions of authority in his coming kingdom, which is a radical misunderstanding of what his kingdom is about. But she asks him, hey, will you give my sons positions of authority in your kingdom? And it says, when the other disciples caught wind of this conversation between their mom and Jesus, the rest of them are indignant. Like, they are angry about it, as I think we would be too, right? It's like, dude, you got your mom to go talk to Jesus for you? Like, really? How old are we, right? But as a result of this situation, conflict breaks out among the disciples. Jesus has to sit them down once again, talk to them about what it looks like to have leadership in the kingdom of God. In one account, in Acts 15, it says that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas had, quote, such a sharp disagreement with each other that they parted company. Paul, as in the guy who wrote most of the New Testament that we hold in our hands, much of which is about gospel reconciliation, This guy had such an intense conflict with one of his good friends that he was in ministry with that they actually had to go their separate ways for a bit. Conflict right there in the pages of the Bible. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, calls out two women in the church who are disagreeing with one another, and he just flat out says, mentions them by name, and says, hey, will you please tell them to get along? There's conflict in the book of Galatians, the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of Ephesians. I could go on and on. I don't want to overmake my point, but the Bible is abundantly honest about the fact that there is regularly conflict between followers of Jesus sharing life together. I always think it's funny when people say, I wish the church today was more like the early church. It's like, you mean the one that argued all the time? Like, there was lots of beautiful, compelling stuff going on with the early church, but the early church was made up of flawed human beings like you and I who got on one another's another's nerves and had conflict just like we do. So the Bible doesn't even try to shy away from this reality that conflict is an expected part of our relationships with one another as followers of Jesus. It's an expected part of being family together. If for no other reason, 
then conflict is just part of being a family, right? If you ever think you've found a biological family that doesn't have conflict with one another, let me tell you what you've actually found. You've either found a family who is really good at hiding and suppressing their conflict with one another, or you've found a family that actually is not close enough with one another to experience conflict in the first place. Because all families fight. And in the same way, if you ever find yourself in a church where there doesn't seem to be any conflict among the different people in the church, you've actually just found a church that is either very good at hiding and suppressing their conflict, which is not a great thing for a church to have, or you've found a church that doesn't spend enough time around one another to have any conflict in the first place, which is arguably worse in a church. So for starters, it's worth considering that if you are experiencing conflict with other followers of Jesus, while it's certainly a sign that something is wrong between you and them, on a deeper level, it might actually be a sign that you're doing something right in regards to doing life together as followers of Jesus. Because if you weren't sharing life with one another, there probably would not be very much conflict as a result. So we try to say this often around here at City Church, but the mark of a church's maturity is not the absence of conflict. That's not the mark of maturity. The mark of maturity in a church is how conflict gets dealt with. That's how you know you've found a healthy church. Not when there's no conflict at all, but when this church handles conflict in gospel-saturated, beautiful, compelling sorts of ways, in productive ways. That's what we should be after in the church. Does that make sense? So the question that all of this brings us to this morning, I think, is how do we navigate conflict well as followers of Jesus? When we encounter conflict, when we annoy one another or frustrate one another or sin against one another or miscommunicate with one another, how do we approach that conflict in a way that is good for us individually, is good for those around us, and is good for the church as a whole? How do we navigate conflict in a healthy way? How do we fight well, so to speak? That's what I want us to consider today. So to do that, we're going to look at two different passages in the Bible. The first one is from Matthew chapter 5. So in this passage, the first one we're going to look at, Jesus is talking about the realities of anger and frustration between fellow followers of Jesus. He's talking about what should happen in that type of conflict, that type of scenario. So look with me in your Bibles, starting in Matthew 5, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And remember that your brother has something against you. Okay, stop right there for just a second. Offering your gift at the altar was an ancient form of worship. It would be sort of like saying today, uh, if you are on your way to church, or if you are approaching the communion tables in the back to take communion. If you're preparing to worship God, Jesus says, and you realize, quote, that your brother has something against you, here's what you should do. Now, just to make, make sure we understand the situation that's being described, if your brother has something against you, like it says in this passage, whose fault does that probably mean the conflict is? If your brother has something against you, whose fault is it? Yours, right? Or at least he thinks it's yours, right? If your brother has something against you, that probably means that you were at fault on some level in the situation, 
So if your brother has something against you, here's what you should do. Picking it back up in verse 24. Here's what you should do about that scenario. Leave your gift there before the altar. In other words, drop everything and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, drop everything that you're doing, put everything on pause until you can go and deal with the conflict, deal with the frustration there between you and your brother or your sister. Go and pursue reconciliation as quickly as you possibly can so that things don't get worse between you and them in the meantime. Jesus is well aware, as I think most of us are today, that leaving conflict unaddressed only makes things worse. He is well aware that time actually does not heal all wounds, especially when it comes to conflict and frustrations with other people. What usually happens is that time actually makes it worse. As time goes by, frustration calcifies into bitterness and bitterness into resentment, and before long just turns into avoidance of the person you're in conflict with. So Jesus says that we should short-circuit that whole process before it even starts. We should, as soon as we are aware of the conflict between us and our brother and sister, stop everything that we're doing and go and talk to the other person about it. So we might sum up these instructions from Matthew 5 with something like this statement. If the conflict is your fault, you go make it right. If the conflict is your fault, you go make it right. Now, chances are that part makes a lot of logical sense to most of us, right? Makes sense that if it's my fault, I should go and pursue reconciliation. I should go try and make it right. The next passage we cover, however, might not make as much logical sense to us. So turn with me just a few pages to the right to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. In this passage... Jesus is also giving practical instructions regarding conflict with other believers, but this time the circumstances are a little bit different. Take a look with me in verse 15. This time it says, if your brother sins against you. So this time it means that the conflict is their fault, right? Conflict is not your fault this time, it's their fault. They sinned against you. Go and tell him his fault in that scenario between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And then the passage goes on to describe what to do if he doesn't listen to you when you go to talk to him about it. But for today, I just want us to focus on this verse, verse 15, where it tells us what to do if the conflict is the other person's fault. It says, if that's the case, you are still the one who should go and pursue reconciliation with them. You are still the one that should go and approach them and deal with whatever it is between you. To summarize this one, we might say if the conflict is the other person's fault, you go make it right. So to recap, if the conflict is your fault, you go make it right. If the conflict is the other person's fault, you still go make it right. Jesus says that as his disciples, we should always take it upon ourselves in every scenario to work through conflict between us and other followers of Jesus. Jesus does not want any of his followers to shirk the responsibility to reconcile with others. Put simply, they started it is not a valid excuse in the kingdom of God. Might be a valid excuse for toddlers, 
It is not a valid excuse in the kingdom of God. Whether the conflict is your fault or their fault or some of both, and let's be honest, about 90% of the time it's some of both, right? No matter whose fault it is, it is always your responsibility to initiate reconciliation. Now, to be sure, there will come times as a follower of Jesus where you have done everything in your power to pursue reconciliation with another follower of Jesus, and they're just not having it. There will come times like that, I can guarantee you. There will be times where you've tried to talk to them all you can about it, and either they're not interested in talking to you about it, or when you do, it's not productive, and they refuse to own up to their part in it, or whatever it is. There will be times where you have done everything you know how to do, and it's just not going anywhere. And so I want you to know you don't need to beat yourself up over those types of scenarios. Romans 12 says, as long as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there will be times where it no longer depends on you. But I'll say this, in my experience, most of us stop well short of that. For most of us, it's actually not that we've done everything possible. It's that we've done almost nothing to deal with the conflict between us and other followers of Jesus. We're sitting back going, well, they better come talk to me because it was their fault. Or some of it was their fault. But what Jesus says is whether it's your fault or their fault or some of both, It's always your responsibility to do something about it. As long as we can do something about it, no matter whose fault it is, we should do something about it as followers of Jesus. Now, I think this approach to conflict, always seeing it as your responsibility to go and make things right with somebody else, when you take this seriously, I think it raises a very human objection in most of us. And that's, well, if it wasn't my fault, why is it my responsibility? Right? I mean, I think if most of us were honest, we would say that's what that makes us feel internally. If the conflict wasn't my fault, why is it my responsibility to deal with it? I mean, that's a tough pill to swallow. If the other person sinned against me, if they wronged me, if they gossiped about me, why in the world would it be on me to go and make things right? If it wasn't my fault, why is it my responsibility? And the reason that it's our responsibility, is because if we would call ourselves followers of Jesus, that is precisely what Jesus did for us. That is the very heart of the good news of Jesus, that though our sin was not Jesus' fault, he made it his responsibility. Isaiah 53, one of the most vivid depictions of the gospel, I think, in all of the scriptures, puts it like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see this? The sin that separated us from God was not Jesus' fault, but he chose to make it his responsibility by going to the cross. If God approached conflict with us like we so often approach conflict with other people, we would never be made right with God. If he sat back and said, well, it's their fault, they got themselves into this mess, they better get themselves out of it. 
They better come talk to me about it. If God approached conflict that way, we would never be in right relationship with God because we would never have the desire to do that on our own. But the good news of Jesus is that God sent his son to pursue, to initiate reconciliation with us. It wasn't his fault. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Out of the grace and compassion for his people, God sent his son to die on a cross to pursue that right relationship, that reconciliation with us. He endured the hurt that our sin caused. It was not his fault, but he chose to make it his responsibility. And through that, through that singular act on the cross, what Jesus did is that he dealt with every single opposition that we might have to dealing with our own conflict with other people. In the cross, Jesus broke the chains of our own self-righteousness, our own frustration, our resentfulness, our apathy, whatever it might be in us that keeps us from pursuing reconciliation with other people, Jesus tore all of that down through the cross. He made a way for us to pursue reconciliation with others just like he pursued reconciliation with us. Which means that if you are a follower of Jesus in the room today, and the other person that you are in relationship with, that you are in conflict with, is also a follower of Jesus, there is nothing keeping you from pursuing reconciliation with them right now. Not a single thing. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying it's going to be instant. It might take months or years to work through it all. But I'm saying it is possible because of what Jesus did. If he could pursue reconciliation with us, we can pursue reconciliation with each other, no matter what the conflict is. It is entirely possible because of the cross and the resurrection. God reconciled us to him, and now we are called, as followers of Jesus, to reconcile with other people. As image bearers of God, as his people who are called to represent him in both word and deed, we are called to the exact same posture, that initiating, pursuing posture towards others, to pursue reconciliation with our church family, even if it was entirely their fault that the conflict is there. And what happens as we take that posture, as we imitate Jesus in that regard, is that we become the type of family that God created us to be all along. We become not a conflict-free community, but one that handles conflict well in productive ways because of the good news of Jesus. That's what we become together as a result. And here's the other thing I think we should realize about dealing with our conflict well. And this is something that so many people do not pick up on when it comes to their discipleship to Jesus. It's not just that dealing with conflict is helpful at a corporate and communal level. It is. It absolutely is that. But it's not just that. It's also helpful to us individually. It's helpful for our own individual growth and maturity and discipleship to Jesus to deal with conflict well. In other words, we grow the most by going through conflict, not running from it. We grow the most by going through conflict, not running from it. As human beings, we tend to spend so much of our time dodging conflict with other people. 
I don't know if you've noticed this. We spend a lot of time and energy dodging conflict with other people. As soon as things get the slightest bit awkward, as soon as there's the slightest amount of tension, we just all together withdraw from the relationship, at least as much as we possibly can. But when we dodge conflict, and this is so important for you to get, when we dodge conflict, we also dodge one of the primary means that God uses to grow and mature us as human beings. We dodge so much of the growth and maturity that he has for us. Joseph Hellerman is a guy who wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it to you. It obviously is very influential for this series that we're in. This quote from him is very, very long, but very good. So I'm just going to read the whole thing, and if you fall asleep, you fall asleep. But I think it's so very helpful. Here's how he describes this. Spiritual formation, and by that, that's just his language for the way that we become more like Jesus as disciples. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wonderlust. I love that term, spiritual wonderlust. But we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. Here's the reality. God puts other followers of Jesus in our lives to help us grow. There's other reasons, but that's one of the reasons. He puts other followers of Jesus in our lives to help us grow. Just by living in relationship with other people, with other followers of Jesus, they help us grow in our understanding of God and ourselves and one another and relationships in general. That's the way it was designed to work. So the more time you spend with other followers of Jesus, the more you will grow as a result of those relationships. The more you stick it out through conflict and resolving conflict with other followers of Jesus, the more you will grow as a result of that process. But if you bail on those relationships, you also bail in aspects of your own growth and maturity. The book of Proverbs uses the imagery of iron sharpening iron to depict this process. That's the imagery that it uses. Now think about that image of iron sharpening iron. The idea is that if you are sharpening a tool or a weapon made out of metal, you generally need another type of metal in order to do that. And generally speaking, speaking when one metal sharpens another, what happens? Sparks fly, right? That's the reality of the process. It's an intense process, but as a result of that process, whatever you're sharpening becomes more of what it was designed to be, becomes more effective. It grows into what it was made to be. That's the picture 
given in the scriptures for how our relationships with one another work. Occasionally, if we're doing it right, occasionally sparks will fly in our relationships with one another. But that's actually a good thing. That means that something's happening. That means that God is using it to grow and mature us as his followers. Unfortunately for far too many people, when the first hint of sparks start to fly at the very first sign of interpersonal conflict, they run from it. They start to daydream about what it would look like to be a part of other newer relationships where there isn't the same conflict or the same frustration. And eventually they end up moving on to another friendship or another community or another church or even another city. And let me just say loud and clear at this point, I get it. I get it why that seems like the best option when we encounter conflict. Some of our deepest wounds come from the people that we are closest to, do they not? And for followers of Jesus, if we're living our life closely with other followers of Jesus, chances are that means we're going to be hurt by other followers of Jesus. There's no real way around it. And so it can seem like the easy solution to just bail on those relationships. But as with most things in life, the easiest thing is usually not the best thing for us. And that's why Jesus wants us to learn how to handle conflict well. And that's certainly true when it comes to relationships. So, what we've discussed so far is what to do about conflict, and we've discussed why it's important to approach conflict that way. Before we're done, I just wanted to talk about how we go about addressing that conflict. Because conceivably, there is a way to address conflict, to deal with it head on, and still do it in very unhelpful ways. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, A while back, I preached a version of this message at a friend of mine's church where they attend. And they told me later that week, they gave me a call, my friend gave me a call and said, hey man, I just wanted to thank you for preaching that sermon um, because the very next day, I had another member of our church call me, yell at me, cuss me out about all the ways that I had hurt them recently, most of which I wasn't aware of. So apparently when I said, go and pursue reconciliation, this person thought I meant go and yell at the person that you're angry with which is a very strategic misunderstanding of what these passages talk about. Does that make sense? So in theory, there is a way to initiate and pursue talking about conflict with other people and still go about it with a really unhelpful posture. So let's talk about how do we do this exactly. Not just what do we do when there's conflict, But what is the posture that we should take on when we go and have these conversations? Because I'll tell you right now, when it comes to conflict, posture is kind of everything. (laughs) Whether the conversation goes well or poorly is almost entirely dependent on both people's postures in the conversation. So let's talk about what type of posture we should take. I've got two phrases for you that I think will help. One that describes our understanding of ourselves and the other one that describes our understanding of the other person. Two postures. First, we should have a self-examining posture. A self-examining posture. I get this from several places in the scriptures. But one of the easiest ones to see it is in Jesus' instructions from Matthew 7, 
verses three and following. We'll put this on the screen. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me first take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, Jesus is employing this word picture, this analogy about logs and specks to illustrate how we should talk to other people about their sin against us, or we could say just in general about our conflict with them. Jesus says, if you're trying to help your brother get a speck of dust out of their eye, but you have a large log sticking out of your eye, that's not going to go so well, right? Because you're not seeing clearly. Well, he says in the same way, if you approach a brother or a sister to call them out on something or engage them on something that they did that was sinful or off or whatever it was, if you go and talk to them about that while you have unrepentant sin in your own heart, you have things that you're not dealing with about yourself, chances are that conversation is going to go really poorly. You're going to have a much more self-righteous, a much more condescending posture than you would have otherwise. So Jesus says, instead, you should first examine yourself. Consider, is there something off in me that maybe is shaping how I'm viewing this situation in some way, big or small? Is there something off in my own heart, in my own life? Examine yourself with that question before you go and deal with it with other people. Now it says, still go deal with it, right? Some people read this passage and they're like, see, Bible says not to judge. It's like, no, it says to examine yourself so that you can be helpful to other followers of Jesus. But if you go in blind, if you go in without acknowledging and repenting of the things in your own heart that are shaping and coloring how you see this situation, that's not going to go well. So Jesus says you should first examine yourself. So practically, here's what this means. If you are in conflict with another follower of Jesus, before coming at them about their fault in the matter, first ask yourself, where might I be at fault here? Where might I not be seeing things clearly in this scenario? Where might my sin be clouding my judgment? Ask yourself these questions, and maybe even sometimes, if you can do it without gossiping, talk to a third party and go, hey, do you see anything off in me? Before I go deal with this situation, do you see anything off in my posture towards this situation? Deal with that, examine yourself, and then you will be able more helpfully to deal with the conflict between you and the other person. And it might be, it very well could be that you spend time processing through that and your sin is only a small fraction of the problem. It could be that after praying through it, journaling through it, having conversations about it, it could be that you realize, man, my sin is only like 1% of the problem here, if that. that. That could be the case. But even if it's only 1%, take that 1% seriously. See it as as much of an issue as the other person's sin. Acknowledge that, deal with that, and then you will be able to have the conversation more helpfully with the other person. That's a self-examining posture. That's how we view ourselves in the midst of conflict. The second thing that we should have, second posture that we should have when dealing with conflict, this has to do with how we view the other person, is that we should have a generous posture. We should have a generous posture. 
Like I said, this has to do with how we see the other person. So often in our conflict with other people, we complicate things by assuming the worst of the other person. We find ourselves hurt not only by the other person's actions, but by what we assume the motives were behind their actions. And usually we assign the worst possible motive to them. We assume that we know exactly why they did whatever they did, that we know what was going on in their heart with complete 2020 clarity, and that's why they did the thing that they did. I did this a few weeks ago. I had to apologize for it. A good friend of mine did something and it was hurtful to me, but instead of focusing on the hurt and talking about that, I assigned the worst possible motive to what he did. And I had to say, hey man, that, that wasn't okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what your motives were. There's no way I could see with 20-20 clarity what's going on in your heart. And so I should have come and talked to you about the hurt itself and not about what I assumed the motives were behind what you did. Because jumping to conclusions is no way to treat another follower of Jesus. So what I would encourage us to do when there's conflict is as much as possible, give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Give the other person the benefit of the doubt. If there are obvious hurtful actions of theirs that need to be brought up, bring those up. But don't make assumptions about what the motives were behind those actions. If someone talked about you without you being present, don't assume that they did it maliciously. If someone canceled on you last minute, don't assume that they did that just because they're avoiding you. If someone didn't invite you to something, don't assume that they did it just to spite you and leave you out intentionally. There are so many other possible reasons for each of those things happening. Don't automatically jump to the worst possible motive that that person could have. So I think with those two things, with a self-examining posture and a generous posture, I think we at least have a recipe for dealing with conflict well in our midst as a church family. I'm not saying those two things guarantee that those conversations will go well, but I am saying that they give you a lot more of a shot than you would have otherwise. So here's my final plea to us. Let's be a church that fights well. Let's be a church family that navigates conflict well, that doesn't just sit on conflict and frustration and misunderstanding and let it calcify into bitterness and resentfulness and distancing ourselves from them. Instead, let's deal with it proactively. If there's a misunderstanding, if there's a miscommunication, if there's something weird or tense or off between us and another a follower of Jesus, let's take Jesus' instructions in the book of Matthew seriously. Let's go and say, hey, can we talk about this? I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure when it started. I'm not sure exactly the dynamics of it, but I would love to figure out what it is so that we can resolve it together because that's what the gospel makes possible between us. Let's be a church family that navigates conflict well. Even as we experience conflict and frustration and exhaustion with one another, let's also remember that if we weren't experiencing conflict, that would probably be a far worse sign because it would mean we're not sharing life with one another as followers of Jesus. The fact that we are occasionally experiencing tension with one another means that on some level we are living life together as a church family. Families fight no matter what, so let's fight well. So here's what I'd love for us to do. I'm gonna ask the band to come on up. 
I've got some immediate application of this passage for us. If you've been around City Church for very long, you know what's coming here. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that if we are on our way to the altar, if we are preparing to worship God in some way, and we realize that there is conflict between us and another follower of Jesus, we realize that there's something off between us. It might be outright anger. Like we might have refused to talk to this person for months because of what's going on. Or it could be a lot milder than that. It could just be frustration, tension, awkwardness. Something went down a while back and things just haven't been the same since then in the relationship. It it could be anything from not severe at all to very severe. But Jesus says if we realize as we are preparing to worship that our brother has something against us, that there's something off in our relationship, that we should stop immediately, drop everything, go and deal with that situation, and then continue and offer our gift. So this morning, all I want us to do is take Jesus' instructions seriously. As we prepare to sing songs to Jesus, like we do every single week, as we prepare to take communion, which is a reminder, it's an act of worship to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he did for us. As we prepare to participate in worship together, let's make sure we're really worshiping. Let's make sure we're not using that as an easy way to avoid true worship, which is dealing with the conflict with one another. We're going to sing songs about how God, at great cost to himself, made reconciliation possible between us and him. So let's not sing those songs while ignoring to work out that implication among each other, by refusing to deal with the conflict that's between us. And so we're just going to kind of give you space like we always do. We always have space in the room to just deal with whatever the Holy Spirit might be doing. In here, but specifically today, I'd love for you to just consider is there something that needs to be dealt with between me and another person in this room, another follower of Jesus, whether they're in this room or not? And if there is something that needs to be dealt with, go and deal with it. Before you sing anything, before you take communion, go and deal with whatever it is that needs to be dealt with. If they're in this room, grab them, find a corner, find a wall in this room, go on the back patio. I don't think it's raining anymore. Maybe it is, but it's worth it if you're dealing with conflict, right? Find whoever it is and go talk to them. If they're not here this morning, call them. Step outside, dial them up. If they don't answer, send them a text and say, hey, we need to talk about something this week. Don't let me forget. When can we get together? Whatever it is, if there is conflict, if there's something off between you and another follower of Jesus, let's deal with it as an act of worship, as an implication of the reconciliation that God made possible between us and him through the work of Jesus on the cross. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll just give us some space to do that as we sing. Father, we thank you for the work of your son Jesus on the cross. God, that though our sin was not your fault, you chose to make it your responsibility. You came on a rescue mission through Jesus to seek and save what was lost, to make things right between us and you. And so if we're in this room today and we would say that our life is defined by that message. We would say that our life has been changed by that reality, by what you accomplished for us 
God, I just pray that we would work out the implications of it relationally this morning. God, I pray that if there is conflict that is causing division or tension or awkwardness between us and other followers of Jesus, God, I pray that you would not let us not deal with it this morning. God, that we would be burdened by it, not out of guilt, but out of a desire to see things made right between followers of Jesus. You have made unity possible. And so, God, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, empower us to work out the implications of that. God, we ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. As many of you guys know, we are in the process of renovating and moving into a historic church building located on the Tennessee River right in the heart of Knoxville. If you regularly benefit from this podcast, we would love to extend the invite to you to consider giving to those renovations. If you're interested in finding out more, head to citychurchknox.com slash building.